I am a uh, glutton for punishment because I did have a sermon written and I actually had a slideshow almost done. And yesterday afternoon I was reading through it and I just didn't feel right about it. I was actually going to switch uh, switch gears from my plans. My plans were to do what I'm doing right now and it's, that is return back to Acts where we were uh, before I started pre- preparing for man camp and... Uh, drawing from my archives for Sunday morning to try to lighten my load. But again, I just got to where I was last night, yesterday afternoon, and I felt like the Lord was speaking to me more from where we are in Acts. Chapter 22 of Acts, no slideshow. I will be reading verses 1 through 16 and preaching from this passage. But to give us some context, maybe you will recall that Paul was called by God on his third missionary journey to return to Jerusalem. He felt called to Jerusalem and to suffer for Christ. He knew God wanted him in Jerusalem, but his friends knew, and I think Paul knew too, that he would suffer if he would return there, even though he went. He got there and the church leaders there said, Hey, Paul, can you look a little more Jewish? so as not to, that's my paraphrase, so as not to tick off the Jewish believers there. You know, all this freedom in Christ stuff that you preach might sound a little wrong to them. So Paul is about unity when it doesn't cause him to compromise. So he does a Jewish vow. But then there are some non-Messianic Jews around, Jews who don't believe in Christ, who are still Jewish. And they're upset with Paul and his Christianity. Because Paul is hanging around Gentiles a little bit more. And so, uh, they're upset with Paul and his Christianity, and then a riot ensues. And where we last left our heroes, some Romans came to the rescue, a first for their part, (laughs) to the temple, and they stop this riot. And then Paul is finally given the floor to preach, to make his defense to this crowd that was literally probably trying to kill him. So I do invite you to stand one more time in honor of hearing the word of the Lord. So if you're able to stand, please do. And I'm going to back up to Acts 21, verse 40, just because my OCD will kill me if I don't. (laughs) But verse 40 of Acts 21 says... And when he, that is the uh, centurion, I believe, had given Paul permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed, addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language or dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. 
As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Let's pray. Father, forgive me when your word to me sounds repetitive and light. Whenever it, I want to be snarky and arrogant and say, ah, I know all this already. Father, help us to saturate in these words, breathe life into our hearts and minds because of these words, we pray. Father, I pray for anybody with hard hearts, with a arrogant or cocky spirit or a unwilling ears to hear you. I pray that you would break the, that in these moments. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to breathe life into people. Have your way in our hearts. Say what it is you desire. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. At the beginning of, of February, whenever I shifted over to preach from archived sermons, yes, because of my workload uh, with man camp, but I also reluctantly admit that this scripture gave me pause. Because we uh, uh, have looked at Paul's conversion story back in Acts 9. Now, I know that was like four years ago for many of us. But it's just a subject that we seem to talk about. And, uh, you know, it's almost like watching a movie 400 times. <laughs> you know, won't, won't it lose the capacity to engage me? You know, and um, I was just afraid that the oft-told story might lose its power. So after being convicted about that, maybe I'm also too much of an optimistic mystical Christian, but I pray may it never lose its power or its savor. And God forgive me when it does lose its savor. Uh, the transformation of a sinner saved by grace should be compelling, should be captivating, should be liberating to those of us who even may profess to be believers but battle sins yet. And what sealed the deal for me yesterday as I read this, asking God to speak, uh, to move in me, to give me some sort of confirmation as to what I should preach on. And my returning to this text for today, uh, I felt compelled that it was the right move as I considered Paul, and as he told his story again, I recalled something else he said to the Romans. 
He said in Romans 8, 6 through 8, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See, Paul writes that, I believe, from a place of personal experience, personal identity, personal suffering. He was hostile to God. Hostile in such an outward manner that even many who don't know Christ cannot compare. You know, Paul murdered or strongly desired the murder of believers. He hated Christ and what Christ taught. He was hostile. But we'll unpack the truth of what Paul says here as it creepily pertains to us. <laughs> but maybe we're just unwilling to admit it. The progression of this passage, I hope, is easy enough. We're going to take two verses to note the setting. But then three H's will guide the rest of our examination. Hostile, holy encounter, and then lastly, him. But first, in verses 1 through 2, let's look at the setting. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Now, again, Paul is likely near the entrance of what is the barracks for the Roman army, Antonio's fortress, Antonia's fortress, near the temple grounds. And it was at the temple grounds that he was ambushed and a riot started. Literally, hundreds of Roman troops came to the scuffle. A centurion usually commands a hundred men, and it said multiple centurions came. And they were pulling him aside for safety, but now he's able to make his defense and he speaks to the very people who had just been trying to kill him. And he addresses them with some respect, brothers and fathers, and I, and I feel like it's in this light of men and defenders of our hallowed religion. That's who he's trying to address. The authorities of what you're trying to protect, right? The righteously indignant against what you see in me. Paul is saying, hear what I'm about to say. It says, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, so they could tell that he was going to be respectful to their own religion, Judaism, they became even more quiet. And now Paul's about to unpack his testimony. He is about to lay into how he was once a hostile. He was a hostile to the Christian like they are now, but he was really hostile to God per his own words in Romans. And he said, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Every sinner has a story. Every person has a story. And for the person who doesn't know Christ, maybe every story is different. For Saul, who was also Paul, he was born in the old covenant chosen people of God, Jewish. He was born in a Roman city, likely with Roman citizenship. He was brought up, though, Paul says, quote, in this city, being Jerusalem, the spiritual capital of the Jews. 
educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which seems to be a popular rabbi. He was mentioned in Acts 5. And so he also says he was in the strict manner of the law, so a Pharisee, a devout follower of their religion. And not only devout, but Paul says, zealous for God as all of you are this day. See, where where people you and I may know may be indifferent to God, Paul is perhaps further, (laughs) more blatantly stuck in the mud, hostile towards God in Christ. Christ offends me and my faith. For Paul, good deeds, the right festivals, the right days, the right activities, the right thinking, right morality, right people, right practices meant he would get closer and closer to God. And for Paul, it's only through his vigorous observation, his devoted practice, his zealous fervor in what he considered God's right way of living communicated to the world, in that he would be saved. Physical, tangible requirements were on planet earth. Temple worship, Torah observation, first five books of the Bible. Fellowship with the right people and shunning the wrong people. Paul says in verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. This is how ingrained Paul was against God's people. See, while you or I might know a few indifferent folks, those who say, I'm I'm not a believer, don't bother me, I won't bother you, Saul says, I'm a believer, all right, and your beliefs offend me. (laughs) I want to squash those beliefs. There are Saul's in this world today who are grossly offended and violently oppositional to what Christ stands for. If you value human life in the womb, some value the right to murder them in the womb. If you believe marriage is between one biologically born male and one biologically born female, they believe marriage is of no necessity for two consenting people, or it's an institution that's not sacred and available for everyone and anyone. If you adhere to one way, one truth, one life, they resent the premise and state that you should not only release such an idea, but you should celebrate many ways, many truths. I've been talking about two possible non-believers, the fiery, hostile, oppositional types like Saul, and then just the indifferent types. Yet, there is a similarity that I have personally noted. And perhaps it brands me as a simpleton. But for those who don't follow Christ but know about Christ, though they may claim indifference, many times probing reveals opposition. Because Christ will even confront indifference. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Seems kind of black and white. Paul echoes this sentiment himself. He says in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Saul didn't have indifference. He had opposition. 
He was hostile towards God. He was bound to end this rebellion among the Jews, follower of this Christ, until he had a holy encounter. That's verses 6 through 10 in chapter 22. If you have a Bible, read with me. It says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. There's a pastor I listen to from time to time, and I've borrowed a few phrases from. And one of those phrases I like is this, that the Christian way of witnessing is not an imposition, but a proposition. And there are many ways this is true. We we think of some of the religions who do practice imposition, kind of convert or die, you infidel. That's kind of imposing. Even some Christian faith traditions seem to have this carry a big Bible and walk people into submission (laughs) sort of style of witnessing, because that always works. However, we see Christ in the Scriptures having compassion. Stating things like, you lack one thing, go sell all you have. And the potential convert who hears such a tall order can't do it, walks away ashamed. Christ doesn't pursue them. He's not going to impose on them. Christ in Luke 14 says this, that one should count the cost. And if it's too costly, then it's too costly. Christ isn't getting out his arms to do half Nelsons and drag them off the synagogue to church. He's not imposing, he's proposing. But the flip side of this is that Christ does not sugarcoat. That's why he says hard things, like deny yourself, follow me. Christ is blunt. Christ is sometimes abrasive. Christ is true, as in true, true. (laughs) Our culture right now, at least, maybe it's been always, I don't know, I haven't lived for all of our world's existence to tell you, but right, right now, at least, there seems to be this unspoken rule that says, if the truth hurts, maybe admit some things. For the sake of peace. Saul's headed on the road to kill some Christians. Maybe the urgency made Christ more than able to clothesline Saul to the ground and get in his face and say, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Here's what I love most about Saul's conversion story. It blows out of the water every believed to be factor in our understanding of conversion stories. You see that? There's no sinner's prayer. There's no altar. There's no discussion of heaven or hell. There's no asking Jesus into his heart. Baptism comes later after Christ has confronted him. But rather, it's it's situational. There's a phrase that comes from the Quaker initiator, movement founder, whatever you want to call him, George Fox. He says, there is one that can speak to thy condition, Jesus Christ. Jesus shows up to Paul here and he makes it real personal. It's all about his condition. It's all about his situation. Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. Jesus, the one you're persecuting. (laughs) That's all that's needed. Saul never states the moment where he said, be my Lord. That's implied. That's understood. For some people who aren't believers, who is Christ? He might say, I'm the one you're running from. 
Who is Christ? I'm the one who's offering a better solution to your problem than your drink, than your lifestyle, than your regrets, guilt, and shame. Who is Christ? The Father you never had but always wanted. Who is Christ? Your righteousness. And then Christ doesn't even give one second. I love that. Paul doesn't have one second to saturate in the conversion experience. Now, one thing I do know that hasn't been around for the ages is our fixation with the conversion experience. If you remember the day you were reborn, great, hallelujah, I celebrate that. It's a great day to remember. I'm not diminishing its importance in any way, shape, or form. Frame the date, but tell me the date of any of the disciples' conversion experiences. Was it when Jesus said, come follow me? Was it when Peter said, I believe you are the Christ, before he denied him? Was it when Christ reinstated Peter? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Paul. And then immediately, that very second, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Like did Paul say, whoa, wait a minute, I I guess I'm saved. (laughs) Like thanks for giving a moment's breath to factor in everything. Now, this seems a bit imposing, right? Call it what you want, but I have a feeling that the sovereign God of the universe who made Saul knew his heart and knew that he'd respond positively, like they could cut out the courting period and go straight to marriage, right? Like God's saying, when I show up to Saul, there's going to be no test drive period. He's not going to need to come to church for four months, be prayed for by 30 close family members and friends, and then have 13 arguments with the pastor. No, rather when I call him, he'll come. Some people are like that. I just wanted to take a clue from Paul's conversion, though, and see that for Christ, it wasn't a huge, satisfied sigh, like, finally, you're saved. Rather, it was, you're persecuting me, now you're mine, here's your job. (laughs) Do you know that God's got a job for you? Do you know that job? I'll give you a hint. We can we can take a hint from the rest of this passage here. It's about Him, Christ. That's the third movement in this message, Him. Verse 11, Paul says, And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews, who lived there. Now, I think this was something that I missed in Acts 9 about Ananias. I don't even know if it's... Stated in Acts 9, he he said that he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. We can see even in the book of Acts, even if you go back to chapter 21, that among the Christians, there are Christians who, like Paul, seem more free around the ideas of the law, namely that the believer, Jew or Gentile, they aren't called to keep the law like the Jews used to. Meanwhile, there seems to be other Christians who believe if you're Jewish by race and ethnicity, then the law still has some sort of bearing on you. Though also you serve the Messiah. And I don't know if Ananias is like that to a T, but we again, we see that he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there in Damascus. He, he held a good reputation even among the Jews. Maybe Paul is meaning Jewish Christians. I don't know. But it says he is a devout man according to the law. And it's perhaps a character quality that Paul brings up as he concerns himself again with the audience that he's talking to 
zealous law-keeping Jews in Jerusalem. Continuing in verse 13, he says, Ananias came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. The first thing Saul sees since Christ's clothes lined him on the road, called him a persecutor, what's going to happen? What's Ananias going to say? Are they going to have the altar moment now? No, rather Christ still seems to be about business, that guy. And he said, the God of our fathers, Ananias says, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. One of the other things of our culture today that I've been made aware of is this idea of of affirmation, self-identification, as in you're valued, you being you is good enough, you're just incredible, you should just get an award for merely existing, like go you. And, And it's not that I believe the opposite. Rather, I believe it more intensely but also with a course correction, this affirmation stuff. I believe it more intensely, but with a course correction. You're valued because you've been bought with a price. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do I have worth? Am I something? Am I someone who has value? Yes, great value. So much value that you were conceived in the mind of God. He formed you in your mother's womb. He made you with sanctity, value, and worth. Every part of you is planned. You came with a purpose. And then you were of so much worth that the God who made every star in the farthest galaxy that you see, and every smallest speck of an atom that you cannot see and fills every material thing in the universe, that same God who made all of those things became a person, suffered on the earth, died in your place for your sin. God literally died, if you can wrap your head around that, because you are worth that much to Him. You've been bought with a price. Is that affirmation enough? I believe it more intensely. But it also comes with course correction. Affirmation and identity is not important because we need to bring who we are and our great ideas to the table. Rather, We need to bring Him in us to the table. Now some people hear that and scoff and say, so that just rips to bits all this affirmation. If I'm of value, why are my great ideas and the cool things I think of worth bringing to the table? Because we aren't made to glorify who we are, but who He is. And if we actualize Him in us, if we glorify Him in our bodies, that's actually what Paul says In one of those bought with the price statements, he says, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. That's the course correction. My value, my affirmation of me is best served with realizing, yes, God literally died for me, then thus I die for Him. And in that, we thrive. The Creator says, I made you for me, I bought you for me, Thus we trust the Creator and live for Him. That's where we'll thrive. You know, if you want graphic, horrible, disheartening confirmation of this, talk to people who struggle with identity in their basest sense. Their biology as a man or a woman. And see if they're living happy, free lives when they do sex changes. 
Why am I talking about identity and value? Christ's capturing of Paul, saving him, wasn't about Paul. The conversion Saul undergoes isn't a moment pinned down in Acts for us because of its great introspection where after Paul analyzed his navel, he decided to accept Christ. Rather, Christ's rescue of Saul is to then commission him for Christ's purposes. It's about him. See what Ananias says again, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Why? So that God can affirm Saul and all of his zealousness and all of his holy fervor as an angry Jew, defender of the faith? No, for this, for you will be a witness for him. It's about him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now in all of this, the Creator who who bought us and saved us is still our Creator. He designed us with a purpose. So you and I will bring who we are and what we do and perhaps what we do best to the table. But even our gifts will be for His glory and that will be the most satisfying and fulfilling in us. When we are using all that we are to glorify Him, that's exactly what we're made for. Then verse 16 is kind of this afterthought, like this is where the American Christian rises up in Ananias. Oh, I forgot, Paul, you probably want an altar call. Verse 16, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. See, I want you to see conversion is almost relegated to the stepping stone. Like, Paul, there are bigger fish to fry than inspecting your religious fervor and how great of a defender you are. Yes, there are even bigger fish to fry than just getting with the program and accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior, not your hostile enemy. So let's just get her done, Saul. You have work to do. For the mind, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. For Saul, it's scary. Because he thought his mind was not on the flesh, but on great things. On God's things. Christ is ruining my religion. He's challenging everything holy, sacred, and good. He's offending the temple. He's upending the law. And in Saul's fervor, Saul sought out death. Death to Christians, death to Christ, death to the movement, death, death, death. And Christ confronts him. And even in Saul's highly grand, religiously motivated zealousness, Christ says, you aren't pleasing me. You're persecuting me. You aren't submitting to the law you claim you love. Rather, you're breaking it. You're willing to murder in my name. I don't know where you are, where this hits you, what's going on in your life, what your condition is, but maybe Christ needs to clothesline you today. Maybe he has something very relevant to your situation that he has to say. Are you hostile towards God? Maybe even if you're a believer, are you still hostile to something he's saying? Maybe he's picking on you for a sin that you're unwilling to repent of. Maybe... He's bringing up a past situation that you you haven't resolved, but he wants you to resolve. I don't know what it is, but are you hostile? Maybe in these moments a holy encounter can happen. And maybe 
Christ has the words that are all too relevant for your situation. See, maybe you came here to hear, oh, Jesus loves you and He's just pleased as peaches that you're on His team. But rather, oh no, you find out the sovereign of the universe says, I know you're on my team. I bought you, remember? I got something to talk about with you though if you're willing to listen. And it's my hope and my prayer and my own desire that my life be about Him and your life be about Him and whatever He's calling you to. Like Saul was, you will be, like Saul was, you will be obedient because you long to glorify Him and glorify Him. In glorifying Him, your life will be fulfilled, thriving, what it should be because Christ bought you to glorify Him. He purchased you so that you might set your mind on Him and have life and peace and not death. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I I live in a culture that's so me-centered. I grew up in a culture that's so me-centered that it still surprises me whenever I see you call people in the Scriptures of how you-centered it is. You created people. You died for them. You purchased them. And you have jobs for them. Father, if anybody here is wrestling with you, perhaps like Jacob wrestled with you, or like Saul, maybe people are misguided and don't know it, and like Saul, they think they're headed down the right path and you've clotheslined them today. I pray that this is a time where they lay down their hostility and that Instead, that they would enter into a holy encounter with you and that they would receive you and receive what you would say to their hearts and to be obedient. It would follow you now. There is no magical formulaic prayer. There is no, there's nothing except for you and me. And sometimes all we need to hear is what you're saying to us here and now. You're mine, buddy. I pray that we would be obedient to that and be yours. Even for those of us who have been following you for some time, if this is a day where you have said, you haven't surrendered this part of your life to me, I want it now. May we surrender it and follow you closer and obey you wholeheartedly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for our sins and rising again. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live in us, that you're willing to convict us. Now we please ask that you would give us a willing heart to respond obediently. Father, as I think about the meal we're about to enjoy, we pray that you would bless those who have prepared the food. Thank you for their preparation. We pray that you would bless our conversation around the table and that we would have a good time and fellowship well with you and your people. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.